0: with the 18th pick of the 1997 nba draft the portland trailblazers
1: select chris anstey of the South East melbourne magic of the national basketball league of australia
0: anstey in support
1: alley <laughs> play nice
0: finish <laughs>
2: Anstey with the winning jumper from the baseline. Lampley looks for Anstey down low,
0: double team. The MVP finds a way to open the Tiger scoring account. As Anstey rejected the shot and with some authority. Chris Anstey with a three, and it's a big three for the Melbourne Tigers as Anstey feeds Dave Thomas for the two and a chance at a three-point play, and the championship is heading to. What's up, everybody? Not my house is in your house. This is your host Eric, and right next to me always is my co-host Zach. Zach, what's going on today, my friend? Doesn't get much better than this. You know, I'm a big
2: 90s hoops fan, and I really love the old players from that Mavericks team. This guy's my favorite guy from that team. We get to learn a lot more about Australia, so I'm excited, man.
0: Absolutely, he's an Australian basketball legend who's had a successful career in the NBA, at NBL, and overseas three-time NBL champion and a two-time NBL MVP is also the author of a book called Tall Tales. We're honored to have him on Mr. Chris Ancy. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Yeah, gentlemen, you're, you're too kind. If I was one of your favorite players to watch back in the NBA, you had a very, very
2: low bar and you didn't blink because I was only there for a minute, but uh, <laughs> I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the kind words. No Chris I'll tell you what I love that Mavericks team and I just loved what you brought to that team so those Mavericks teams especially uh, I re- I really did enjoy watching you so that you is
1: know, a true I'll tell you you know what it was I got there and and I was new to the game and the club wasn't very good we we'd lost the Triple J's we had Michael Finley and and that was about it and yeah that was what I knew the NBA to be a, on a team where we really battled for every single win but we had some highlights, you know, we, we beat the Bulls, uh, which I'll tell everybody and anybody about to this day. But, you know, where they've come as a club, it's just been so much fun watching from the other side of the world and, and seeing what Dirk was able to do and seeing what Steve was able to do for a period of time before he went back to Phoenix. It's just been, it's been incredible because we were nowhere near that when I was there.
0: Were you, were you there when the Triple Js were there or did you go there after?
1: I was after. I got drafted in 1997, so I I missed them.
0: I can't can't ask you if the Tony Braxton story is true then. In in my head, it
1: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always thought that was a great story. Hey, we like to get to know our guests before we start talking basketball. I believe, and I think we're correct on this, that you're our first guest actually born in Australia. What can you tell us about your childhood growing up in Australia?
1: You know, most of the Australian population lives near the beach. So every holidays we'd go down to the beach or I uh, would go and play tennis tournaments. I was a a tennis player until I was 17 years old and played with a guy who turned out to be a very famous Australian rules football player named Dustin Fletcher. And he quit playing tennis at 16 and, and played more games of AFL football than anyone in the history of the game, bar four people. And I found basketball late. Um, but with regard to childhood, it's uh, I never had a shrimp on the barbie. It's always sausages and steaks. Uh, that, that one's a fallacy. But uh, I just love being outdoor. I loved having a ball in my hands, no matter what sport it was. And uh, you know, I was grateful to find basketball late. And I, and I wasn't burnt out by the time I found it. Awesome. Hey, I played a little
0: tennis when I was younger. I played all sports. How much do you think tennis helped your basketball in terms of you know your cutting ability, or or just your endurance, because I know I remember playing tennis in seventh and eighth grade, and that's a no joke endurance sport. I don't think people understand how great you have to be in shape to play that sport. So, did you find any translation between tennis and basketball?
1: A, a little bit. I think the two things that I've landed on, and it's something you're not really aware of at the time. is For seven foot tall, my feet were pretty quick, and I could move okay because I didn't have an out of being just okay for a tall tennis player had to be as quick as everyone else um and the other thing i don't think many kids spend much time on when they're just a a single sport athlete is actually depth perception and touch and i think with tennis I, i had pretty quick hands and i could read the ball in the air and you know i think those things help so when i when i started the game late you know, every coach in the world back then would tell our bigs or would tell any bigs to, to run that center lane and run basket to basket and for me that was the easiest thing in the world and i could beat most players up and down the floor even if i couldn't play the game i you know brian Gorgian who's coaching the the australian olympic team at the moment um he always told me get one basket in transition every quarter and one offensive rebound every quarter then i'm eight and four before i even start playing and that was where I built my game at probably 19 years old when I finally found Gorge.
2: Yeah. And with you being such a late bloomer, who would you say really discovered you or or encouraged you to play basketball? I mean, that must have been hard to leave tennis for basketball. And I mean, how difficult of an adjustment was that mentally from a mental standpoint going from tennis to basketball?
1: You know, my my dad had probably suggested a few times that I should play basketball and maybe because he did was the reason I didn't. Um, But (laughs) I filled in my younger brother played, and I tell this story a lot is that this one men's C grade game I filled in for on a week night at the local basketball stadium and I think we've all been in in those sort of games when there are maybe a dozen people sitting around. one of them that day happened to be a talent scout for one of the the better junior basketball clubs who had an affiliation with a national basketball league club and they saw me play. Um, they saw me run and they invited me down to train. And the the coach and I'll name him, his name was Des Middleton, who took all the time in the world with me. And he was never about winning games of basketball. He was about me enjoying it. He was about what I could be long term. And uh, he was the guy who I, I think really made it comfortable for me to change sport because I, I was in a foreign environment and outside of my height being considered a positive thing and you know as a kid we don't like to get picked on and tall skinny kids get picked on a lot basketball was it I wasn't the only one and that was was kind of cool but um Des made it a place I wanted to be and you know I had a couple of great coaches over the years and and then I met Des middle I'm sorry I met Brian Gorgian and he introduced me to a level of thinking that I could be a lot better than what I thought I could be and we had a few like-minded young players on our team and he just introduced me to a level of of work that I didn't know I was capable of doing, but I'm really grateful that I was.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like you said, you had to learn basketball pretty quickly. I mean, you were a professional by age 17, I believe. And, um, you played some great players like Luke Longley, Andrew Gaze, Shane Heal, a lot of Australian legends. I mean, um, how important were those guys for your development as a young player? Like, what would you say you learned from them? Because you're improving at a rapid speed.
1: I think you become what you surround yourself with. And just being on the same court as those kinds of guys. And it wasn't Luke for me because Luke was already at New Mexico State and in the NBA. And But Shane and Andrew and, and the higher profile Australian players, you understood the high level of scoring that was possible in that guard spot. And then... There were much bigger, stronger guys, guys like Mark Bradkey, who came and played for the Philadelphia 76ers for a minute and had a really successful international career. Tony Ronaldson, John Dodge, these seven-foot, 6'10 guys that were just so much bigger and stronger than me, I realised really quickly or, or I thought that I could do what they could do with the basketball, but I had no chance in hell of getting to the spots that they could get to, so... You know, when I talk about coaches and, and my development, there, there's a guy named Bruce Gray who's the best strength and conditioning guy in this country in my mind. It wasn't until he got his hands on me uh, that I really started making inroads because all of a sudden I could compete better physically. And I was never the biggest, strongest guy, but I could hold my ground and I could get to some spots. And when I got to know the game, he was the guy with Brian Gordon that took me to another level because I could compete physically
2: yeah and i mean at that age because i mean when we're kids i mean obviously you started older but a lot of us when we're kids we have guys that we really look up to and try to emulate our game after and i'm curious when you're at such an older age learning how to play basketball did you try to emulate your game after anybody or i mean did starting late help you like not develop bad habits
1: that's the key i i don't think i had bad habits coming in but Yeah, well, the other thing, and the answer is no, I didn't emulate anyone because I'd never watched the game before and everybody I watched I was seeing for the first time. So there were bits and pieces that I wanted to try to copy. But the the great thing about coming in so late was that I was naive. I, I didn't know what the sport had looked like for the last decade. I didn't know what normal was. And I remember really, really early that, we ran this offense where the ball would reverse through the five-man, and, you know, the five-man's defender just stood in the middle of the key and just bumped cutters and bumped the guards and helped on any dribble penetration. I thought, what if a big guy could shoot? Wouldn't this be a really easy shot? Because no one's ever contesting it, and that was how naive and how dumb I was when I started. So I started trying to teach myself how to shoot. And as the years went on, it became a strength, and and then I met Dirk Nowitzki. And I've never, I've never seen a more effortless shooter in practice just repping and repping. And it just he didn't even need his legs under him. And, and that was a whole nother level to what you know. I thought I was creating or finding some earth-shattering way to beat slow bigs. And then Dirk walked in the gym. I thought, shit, I'm so far behind this guy. This, <laughs> this is embarrassing. Um but, but no, that that was it for me. I just kept my eyes open. I kept my head down. I kept working. And, you know, whatever level I got to, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that I became as good as I could have been.
0: Yeah, it's a great point to make about Dirk too because his jumper was so fluid. I mean, watching him, I remember when he came in because that was still when they were saying, you know, oh, you know, players overseas are soft and this, this, and that. And he comes in the league and just, I mean, he was a game changer. You're absolutely correct on that. I mean, you had to respect – seven-footers that could shoot. I mean, Ralph Sampson was the first guy that really could shoot at that height, but Dirk, I think, was the first guy that really was like, there's more of us that can do that. Um, talk to us about the draft process. What was it like for you? Do you have any good stories about your workouts? Or, uh...
1: <laughs> you know, my agent was Leon Rose. Um, Leon was the first and only agent I ever met, and I met him because a player named Rick Brunson, who's Jalen's dad, who, who's, now, who's playing for the Mavs, Uh, was playing in our national league in Australia and coach Mike Dunlap, um, who's also been in the NBA for a number of years in college basketball said that he trusted Leon and that was good enough for me. So I became Leon Rose's first ever NBA client and I was pretty comfortable in Australia. We were middle of our season and I kept getting all of these invites to the NBA workouts and Leon gave me the maybe the single best piece of advice that anyone's ever given me. He said, don't you even think about getting on a plane. They think you can play right now. Hide. You stay in Australia. Don't get on a plane. If they want to fly and see you, let them. But there are enough teams who are interested that I I think they'll take a chance late in the first round. All you can do in a draft workout is turn up in an unfamiliar environment, get in a one-on-one basketball and drop off the face of the draft board. So... I stayed in Australia Um, on draft day. We lifted weights as a team in the morning. My whole team came and sat in a television studio with the only thing I knew that was going to happen or that could possibly happen that morning was that the Chicago Bulls were going to draft me with the last pick in the first round, which was unbelievable. Um, I had no idea that the Mavericks were interested. I'd spoken to Don Nelson, but when Portland drafted me, had 't spoken a word to them, which again was a really big surprise, but that only lasted three or four minutes before I found out about the, you know the pre-arranged draft day trade that, that happened to send me to Dallas and you know I went to a team where if Don Nelson likes anything in you know, a player he likes different and I think he thought he was getting different and I had enough good games over the two over the two years but not enough to stick around unfortunately.
2: Yeah, and I, I got to ask, what was that first NBA training camp like? Because you basically how to play <laughs> basketball in Australia. Now yeah. you're learning a completely different game in the NBA. So, I mean, was that a huge culture shock or was your biggest? Huge,
1: adjustment? huge. And, you know, what? I, there are two things, there are two moments I remember in my first couple of days. And the first one was, I actually hadn't signed, back then it was still fax machines and I hadn't actually signed my NBA contract. So I flew first class. So I got into an airplane and turned left, which which blew my mind. Um, and because from Melbourne to Dallas, there's a good 20 hours of travel. So that made things, that was a game changer. But I, I turned up to the Mavericks office and four years ago, for four years prior, I made $7,000. Uh, for the entire three years leading up, I made US about $100,000 for the entire three years and, as I signed my contract, or right before I was about to sign it, uh, they asked, you know, do I need any money just to get myself situated, you know, to, to help get a car or to help lease an apartment? I said, yeah, well, actually, that would be really helpful. And they wrote me a cheque for a quarter of a million US dollars. Wow. Um, and i would never seen that much money. Um, I was able to send every cent of my contract home, which was great advice from William as well. But the, the, the moment on my first... Preseason or my training camp day was I guess I always try the rookies out a little bit so one of the first live possessions we played um, Eric Strickland was on my team and he rolled the ball into the post to me and all Leon had told me again was don't try to be an NBA player and do something you haven't done before go to your strengths and so at that stage I could get to my little right hand hook in the middle of the lane off one or two dribbles and it was reasonably effective in the NBL and so I got there and so I you know, I shifted my defender with my hips I got to my spot in the middle of the paint. I thought, this is going incredibly well. And as I raised up to shoot my little right-hand baby hook shot, another hand just appeared. It was perfect timing and blocked my hook shot just before the peak of it into the side wall that I'm sure there's a mark on the wall still in the Landry Centre from where Sean Bradley just put that ball into the side wall and I thought... Shit, that's my best move, and you know I, I thought I'm I'm dead, and it was almost another moment where I thought if I have to do this against Sean, who's six inches taller than me, and all of these other physical seven footers, I'm going to be out of this league. Before I'm, imagine what they thought. Shit, that's our first round draft pick. Um, so I had to teach myself to shoot. I had to get in the open floor as much as I could. But the, just that one moment was a real eye opener that. My game had to expand, and had to expand really, really quickly.
2: Yeah, I mean, would you say that was your welcome to the league moment, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah th- that? And when I got into a game early in the season,
1: uh, um, I got to guard Shaq, which he must have been looking, going, "Who the hell is this?" <laughs> and um, I guarded him one on one this one possession right in front of our right in front of our bench, and no one came to help. And I thought, at least I'm going to take a charge here. So he took his one dribble and spun and he had both hands on the ball and his elbow clipped me on the cheek. And, and as I went to the ground, I could already see red as I looked up to see that, you know, the Reebok logo with Shaq hanging on the rim with his knees up around his chin? I could see that from the floor through the, through blood. And But I heard the referee's whistle, so I thought, at least that's okay. And I happened to look across and the referee's just pointing straight at me and calling block and I'm like, oh, God, okay, this is really what it is. So I went back in, I got my face stapled up, I've still got a scar on my face and that was just, yeah, this is a whole different level of physicality. Imagine trying to guard that every possession. So it was uh, that was the moment for me that I thought, yeah, th-
2: this is real. Yeah, I mean, anybody else, you might have got that call, but not against Shaq. And I mean, pretty ballsy <laughs> to try to take a, a charge on Shaq. I know. Sure. Right? What, what am What am
1: I thinking? What are my choices? <laughs> to stand there and let him dunk on me with my hands up, or at least dunk while he's lying on the while I'm lying on the ground, I
2: suppose. But <laughs> uh, no, I had a long way to go. Yeah, well, you weren't the first and only one, so that that's fine too. But. Uh... <laughs> Did you have any rookie duties? We like to ask this question. I mean, did you have to go get like AC Green the coffee or anything like that? That, that, that is exactly what I had to do.
1: I would uh, I'd get the call. <laughs> is this a common thing? I'm guessing. But now I'd get the call like, hey, Rook, go down and get me a coffee and whatever time of day or night it was. And, yeah, the regular bag carrying and all that sort of thing. And there, there was one time, though, and I'm, I'm a little bit stubborn, and I was happy to do it. Yeah, Ace, he's a, a legend and, you know, he was on his continuous game streak when I was with him. Um, but but then you had some of the real young guys sort of ask, hey, rookie, come in." And I'm sitting there thinking, I have played four years of professional basketball. I, I wasn't in college and I cracked the shits a little bit one day and I might have had to go back at a couple of the young guys and that kind of ended my rookie duties about halfway through. But... um now for AC was exact. There, there was nothing bad. There was nothing in. Yeah, it was just bad carrying and coffee getting for AC green.
2: Yeah, and that was just a wild guess too. I'm shocked that I was. Yeah, no he, no, he was spot on. It's a great guess. <laughs> yeah, I uh, wanted to ask about Dirk because we've talked about Dirk a little bit so far. But I mean, you played with Dirk and Nash both your second season, and I just remember how obscure and unorthodox some of those drills were with like the balancing drills you know the one foot shooting drills with like his uh trainer from germany and everything and i'm just curious what your first impression was of dirk and nash and those workouts and what you thought of those like workouts i mean did you think they were effective or did you guys kind of like laugh at it like what is this
1: no i was looking at them as they were different um and i'd been around european or international basketball probably more than most United States players with junior national teams that that I'd made recently. And I'd seen a senior Olympic preparation up close. So I I had a little bit of a better understanding of style of play and we run zones and all kinds of things. But the, the thing that stuck out to me about Dirk and Steve, if you go right back to the start is neither of them was very good in their first year at Dallas. And, you know, one of my everlasting memories of, of Steve in a Mavericks uniform is in that first year after the lockout, our home fans booed him every time he advanced the ball down the floor because he was struggling so much and the fans didn't like the trade. But I, I'd done my preseason with Steve and the three of us actually lived in the same apartment building and he, hand on heart, and everybody says it, but he worked harder than anyone that I've ever seen. Um, so much so that I'd, I'd go to get treatment some nights and he was back after a after a preseason camp day doing that extra hour on the clock, hour of runners up and down the floor. And Dirk was doing his workouts with Holger. But they weren't players who came into the league like today's first round draft picks and dominated in their rookie year. They had to work. Um, nothing was handed to them and for those two guys to both be named at different stages of their careers most valuable players of the league, you would never have picked it if you followed the Mavericks at all in either of their first years at the Mavericks because they were a long way off. Um, but it's just an absolute credit to those two. The, the volume and the quality of work that they did was just incredible. So that's my lasting impression. Whatever it was, however obscure those shooting drills were. and But, yeah, Dirk, when I knew him better, um he always used to say because remember back then we used to talk about coming to a two-foot stride stop or a jump stop elevating landing where we take off from there was no runner there was no fade away um, all he ever said was the only things that had to be squared to the rim were his shoulders and his elbow the rest of his body could do whatever it wanted to do as long as he got his shoulders square and his elbow pointing at the rim he was teaching himself to make that shot even from that moment so they had a bigger plan than their rookie year, then Dirk's rookie year, and I think we understand now how successful that's become.
0: Oh, absolutely! You alluded to this earlier in the show. I'm a huge New York Knicks fan. I really can't wait for you to tell me what it was like to to beat that Bulls team. Um, <laughs> you know, really, I think they were probably the greatest team of all time. What was it like playing against that team, beating them? What do you remember the most
1: from that night? I remember every possession. All I remember turning up to the game and. I lived five minutes in the stadium. It took me 30 minutes to get to the game. It was like the Beatles were in town. The, the streets were lined with fans just wanting a glimpse and even that. But but I knew already that this was going to be the only chance that I was ever going to get to play against Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And, you know, we knew it was the last dance. He would announced his retirement. Um, and I've been starting and I had a couple of really good games and, I walked out onto the court before the game, looked down the other end, and, and there's Michael Jordan. And there was just an aura to him, different to Shaq and different to Kobe and different to the other guys that even the modern player that, that you know today. But just being on the court in that first minute with a basketball uniform on, knowing that I was going to play against him, was surreal. Um, but then I didn't play a minute in the first half. Nelly started Sean Bradley, he wanted to give them a different look. We were down eight or nine at halftime, and, and I was mad. Um, I was at halftime thinking Nelly's about to ruin something that I'll hold on to for the rest of my life. And this was before social media, of course. And I'd only been playing the game for four or five years, and my best friends were still my tennis friends. I thought nobody's ever going to believe that I played a game of basketball against Michael Jordan. And then my, the only thought I had at halftime was how do I get a photo with Michael Jordan, because I'm thinking I might get some garbage minutes if we're down a lot. I can't go up to him put my arm around him and ask him to look at the camera bay and say, look, Mike, can we just... So I thought, if I get in and he happens to be on the floor, I'm going to foul Michael Jordan so hard that I'm going to knock him to the ground. I'll probably pick up an unsportsmanlike. I might even cop a fine. But somebody has to take a photo of him and the others coming to start a bit of a scuffle. So that was my plan. And not a good one, but a plan. And then I got in early in the third. I I, I came in for Eric Strickland. We went a little bit bigger. And I was guarding Dennis Rodman. And I went three or four possessions without touching the ball. And I thought, "I, I need to touch it. And so Hubert Davis, can you tell? I remember the game every possession. So <laughs> Hubert Davis, <laughs> Hubert Davis launches into a three. I think go to the boards and like the old Brian Gorge and go get yourself an offensive board. And so as I'm going to the offensive board, he decides to not shoot it, dumps it to me. I go to dunk it and I get fouled. And so the biggest mistake I made that game was as I was walking back to the free throw line, like I've done thousands of times, was I looked around. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Luke Longley on the bench next to Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, Tony Kukoc. I'm thinking this is insane. But then for some reason my my everlasting thought was imagine what these guys are thinking. We're the best team in the world. Who the hell is this guy on the court with us? And all eyes are on me shooting these two free throws, and I shot two of the worst, flattest, hardest free throws you've ever seen in your life. I thought that's it, I'm going to get dragged but as long as I'm here until the next whistle, who cares anymore, let's just play and maybe that was the best thing that could have happened because Nelly kept me on the floor and we started coming back and I remember the the last little bit like crazy, we, you know, Cedric Sabalos has a dunk, we get a five second violation on Scotty Pippen and we're only down three, Cedric Sabalos hits a corner three to send us to overtime and I ended up playing, you know, three and a half minutes of overtime and I I hit a little baseline jumper from said, I had a dunk. I always say on Scotty Pippen, but it was near Scotty Pippen. Um, (laughs) And it does, doesn't it? (laughs) And I got into this little scuffle with Dennis Rodman that of all things made maybe a three-second clip on the last dance, which is essentially all my NBA career has been reduced to in Australia at the moment. Um, But we beat the Bulls and it was just... One of those, I don't want to say life-changing, but it was this life education that, you know, at the risk of getting a little bit deep and meaningful, that we presume to know the outcome of so many events before we even try them, and either we don't do them or we give up on them. And, you know, I, I compare it to Dumb and Dumber, when Lloyd Christmas and Mary Swanson have the, so what are the chances of a guy like you ending up with a girl like me? Give it to me straight. One in a hundred, one in a thousand, she says more like one in a million. And he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. And it's I love it. Because that that was my Chicago, my Chicago Bulls experience is what are the chances of a guy like me who grew up playing tennis, beating a guy like Michael Jordan in an NBA game of basketball? It's got to be one in a million. But as long as that one existed in my brain, and what I've taken from that game for the last 25 years is you might as well have a crack. You might have, even if you lose, who cares? You've lost nothing. You've actually taken a swing, and so I got to take a swing through years and years of hard work, and here we are still telling the story. Geez, twenty something years later, because it was that memorable for me.
0: What was it? Uh, and that's a great story, by the way. What was it? What was it like playing against Rodman? If you don't mind telling our listeners, because you hear, you know, there was so much flash about him and how he was just, you know. Different hairstyles, all the tattoos, everything, wearing a wedding dress, marrying himself, all that stuff. But, but he was an amazing offensive rebounder. You know, the guy just knew where the ball was going. I mean, it was insane. So can you just give the listeners maybe like one or two minutes on what it was like guarding? Because you guarded Rodman also. In that yeah, game. I, I did. Yeah, I did.
1: And the, the thing that I absolutely learned really, really quickly was that he doesn't stop moving and he doesn't stop working for position one two three passes away from where he knows that the shot is going to come from so he engages you into a defensive battle and removes your ability to help just by the position he puts himself on in the floor whether it's away from the ball or putting himself in on-ball situations he's just he works incredibly hard he's always working you underneath the basket or he's or he's removing you from the basket but um just the ability to impact a game without the ball in your hands for me was, and you know what? When you're watching his his quickness on and off the floor, I think he's a really, really underrated athlete. That His multiple rebounding attempts, a fingertip, a fingertip, his feet are hardly ever on the floor. It's like a pogo stick, and he just keeps himself alive in every possession. But, you know, yeah that very same night he was in the weight room it was nba protocol you get to use the home team's weight room before a game and working out like crazy but at the time sean bradley who of course is in all of our thoughts at the moment um he's had a tragic uh, couple of months but sean bradley had a one of his kids wasn't well on this particular night and of all the people you wouldn't expect to come into your team locker room before the game and ask after a sick child it was Dennis Rodman and that's the side of him I guess that I didn't know existed and I guess other people who are close to him do but the public just has no idea but he's got that side where he cares about people and he he wants to know and he he, there was no need for him to go and seek seek Sean Bradley out but there he was um, which just stuck with me as well
0: absolutely did he get into your head in that game at all or no
1: I used to love it when players got into my head because I always figured they had more to lose than me. So he probably did a little bit to the extent where, you know, when I sort of pulled out of throwing an elbow, he was the hits in the ribs and the yeah, the the niggling and the, the words in the ear. But, yeah, he knew exactly what he was doing and he wanted me to throw an elbow and he wanted two shots and possession. But I was very, very grateful I had the, I suppose, the, the presence of mind to not do that because can you imagine that being up four against the Bulls at home with possession and handing them two shots and then they go and score and you've just handed them a potential win. So I'm glad I didn't, but uh, no, he, he does a lot of talking.
0: Yeah, I, fig- I figured as much and, and, and you played in a really – Tough era of basketball. Still, I still believe the '90s, like the early, mid '90s, late '90s, was was still that tail end of really tough basketball that started probably in the '80s. Um, one question I want to ask you real quick is about the business side of the NBA. Um, we hear horror stories all the time about players finding out how they got traded. They, you know, where they don't even find out. It's on social media, or it's or they're you know somebody just tells them. Or it's it's amazing how they find out. You think it'd be done better. Do you remember the conversation leading up to your trade and how did you find out you were trading? Yeah, it was that Johnny
1: Nelson called me, um, spoke to me on the phone and it was pretty brief because, you know, he said, whatever the reasons, you know, the the message you're going to hear on this phone call is that we are trading you. Um, We're comfortable. We're trading you to a team that wanted you on draft day and we hope you succeed. So, you know, it was a nice enough phone call for the moment. I think that's one thing Dallas have always done well and you know one thing I do know about Dallas is I was there for two years when we weren't very good and I certainly wasn't a key part of what they did but they've always welcomed me back Um, Donnie Nelson he's only recently left but it's always been open arms and even the extent where I walked into their locker room in my coaching years I bought a player in Chris Golding who's on the, the Australian national team at the moment he played with their summer league team and they invited me to come in as well and I walked in and yeah, Mark Cuban was in the locker room, and he turned around. He said, "Hey, Chris, great to see a former Maverick." What? Yeah. Like, how, he wasn't even—he didn't even own the team when I was there. But you know, if, uh, I never played college basketball. But for what I understand, it would be as collegiate a way to continually have ongoing relationship with former players as I would imagine in the NBA. So. I don't have. I have very, very few negative words to say about the Dallas Mavericks as an organization. When I was there, and when I left, they've been incredible. When they didn't have to be.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, when you went to Chicago, there's a story that I want to ask you about because it's been floating around the internet, and a lot of people say it's true. Some people say <laughs> the Corey Ben the Corey Benjamin one. How do you how do you just know these things? <laughs> yeah,
1: that that's the one I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I was sitting on the on the stationary bike and I think we'd been in Atlanta but I can't remember where. And for those of for the listeners who don't know Corey Benjamin, one of the funniest lines and Bill Cartwright was on our on our coaching staff and um, Corey Benjamin, this one particular game had gone, played a lot of minutes, was an incredible athlete, and he took off to dunk or make a play at the rim on a game, and he, it was a bad decision. It was a one-on-two, and he jumped, and the ball bobbled out of his hands. He went falling into the camera crew, um, and Bill Cartwright, in his raspy voice, turned down our bench. He's like, this guy right here, down out jumps his ability to land, and the bench lost. It, it was it was a, an incredibly funny comment at the time, but that, in a sentence, described Corey Benjamin, and Corey to his credit, had a very high opinion of himself, had a, was never shy of being confident. And this one particular road trip in Atlanta, he started with some of the boys who'd been around, you know, Kukoc and Randy Brown and, and, and Dickie Simpkins and these guys and started talking about how great he was won, and we could take anyone and, and, and you know, included Michael Jordan in that conversation. And so clearly the boys have gotten back to Michael Jordan and said, this young kid... He's talking about beating you one on one. And it wasn't more than a week later that practice was about to finish. Jordan walks in uh, before the media came in and just walks straight up to him after he said a few hellos and young fella, I heard you've been running your mouth. let's go. <laughs> and um, and again, the passage of time, I may not remember this completely accurately, but, I recall Corey Benjamin sort of all of a sudden becoming very, very apprehensive about what he'd said, but at the same time, thinking, yeah, all right, and he goes, do we shoot for it? And Michael Jordan's just pointed around the practice facility. Young fella, see all those banners? They're mine. It's my ball. And it was. And you've you've never seen a more clinical one-on-one. Yeah, I think Corey scored one or two, but... Jordan was just up and under the whole you reach, I teach, as, as he's middle of his move and he just absolutely destroyed Corey Benjamin and, yeah, gave him a high five at the end. But on the way, I said, don't bring me out of retirement for this shit again. Um, and he walked off and then the media came in. But it, I, I just sat there with my eyes wide open thinking, this is fantastic. Um, the older guys just sat around kind of smirk and thinking, well, we've, seen this, we've seen this movie before. But, you know, he played in street shoes. He wasn't taped up. He had track pants on. Um, he was still the best player in the gym. It was incredible.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you just don't hear stories like that anymore in today's NBA, really. I mean, you, you just really don't. And I just had to ask about that. I, I got to find footage on that because that sounds amazing.
1: There, there, there is, there's footage out there as well. It, it's floating around. And I'm a, re- I'm a little bit disappointed that it was shot directly over my head. So it was the angle that I watched it from, but you can't see me there. And no one believes I was there. It was fantastic.
2: Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And uh, I mean, after that season you went back and played in Australia and you had a lot of success over there. And I'm just curious if you felt maybe any pressure going back to Australia after playing in the NBA and how did maybe they treat you differently from when you first left, and then you came back? Like what, what did you notice was different?
1: I learned early, not really, I didn't notice much and they knew me before I went and you know, I came back and, and I came off the bench, um, played for Brian Gorge and, and he said, how do you feel about coming off the bench? And I was actually a little bit embarrassed that I won Sixth man of the year unanimously that season, but the game had slowed down a lot, having gotten used to the type of athlete in the NBA and yeah, that they were the two years I had a couple of injuries and the, the team ended up folding and I ended up going to Russia, which is probably, you know, they were definitely three of my toughest years in my career, but three I'm most proud of because every strip of support was just taken away. And um, we had some great success in my three years there when I didn't think I was going to make it even through the first season. And, you know, by the time I came back to Australia again, I guess I was as close to as close to a complete player that I could become As i could and they were the years we had some some real success we won a couple of championships we came runners up in another one and oh in another two and uh ended up retiring with a hip injury at 35 years old
2: yeah and this is probably one of our favorite questions to ask our guests because every guest that's played in another country they always have a crazy story whether it's in the game with fans or off the court just living in another country so I mean, what's the craziest shit that you've ever seen living in another country?
1: You know, you know what? We had a, we had this lady, we we I don't know what her name was because I didn't speak Russian, but we called her voodoo lady. <laughs> and I got this real bad, I got this real bad poke in the eye one game and I was really scared because I had the medical staff I didn't know. And I walked into the the, the change room and I, I lay down on the table, I was still holding my eye. And there were two or three people around. I knew the doctor was there and, and nothing was happening. No one had said a word. I laid there for what seemed like three or four minutes and nothing had happened. And I, and I slowly opened my other eye and here's voodoo lady kind of with one palm over the other, pumping her, her palms together over my face and over the rest of my body and I had no idea what she was doing. And anyway, then eventually... The doctor looked at it and treated it, and then time came along, and Martin Mercep, who's another ex-maverick, came in. and I couldn't play the rest of the game because I, I, whatever I'd done to my eye, but um, I said, man, it, it, nothing happened. What, what, what happened? And he asked a couple of people, and uh, they say she was massaging your aura. But, you know, before they can treat your body, they need to treat your aura. And I thought, geez, that's such a different thing. My eye could have been hanging out of my head, but as long as my aura is fine, I'm going to be okay. And, you know, she had another situation where the the head coaches didn't turn up to start the third quarter in a game in Italy. We played one game and we were down and I've never been a part of that where the group just went, okay, let's just start the same way and run what we want to run. And the coaching staff turned up halfway through the third quarter and and just began coaching like nothing had happened. And ironically, we came back and won. So you could argue that what had happened at halftime, because they didn't speak to us at halftime either. And it turns out it might have been the most effective thing, but Voodoo Lady had taken the entire coaching staff out into the car park to draw energy from the full moon to bring that energy back to the team and to the bench in the second half. So <laughs> I guess that's Russian coaching for you. But uh, And you know what? It worked both times, so who am I to argue, I suppose?
0: Now, now, did Voodoo Lady do the aura thing for you when you had your appendix issue? Well, no, no
1: she, she didn't um, because I, I came from home and I went straight to the hospital and <laughs> you know what it was. So I, had my, I got these appendix pains. I got taken on the hospital. Um, I heard a bunch of Russian and then the word surgery. And I said a bunch of English and then London, so there's not a chance I'm going into a Russian hospital. And, I mean, I was in it already, but I was not having surgery in this wooden building. And, again, they got Martin Mersip on the phone as a translator, and he says, look, your appendix is about to burst. You can't fly. You might die. Um, and then he says, it seems like this surgeon's done it before. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. it's so, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it seems like it has. But, so they put me into this room with maybe 40 beds, they took all of my clothes off, so I was butt naked in this room of 40 beds with people in them, and they got, you know, those yellow BIC razors, the, the yellow plastic disposable razors, and they just started shaving everywhere from my knee to my chest in front of a room full of patients. I'm thinking, wow, and for the guys out there, keep in mind it's minus 45 degrees outside, so it's not flattering. And so anyway, then they put me under a trolley. They roll me down the, down the corridor of this hospital naked, no sheet, no nothing, into, a, into, a sur- into an operating theatre with what seemed like a dolphin torch hanging from the roof and just a plastic bin of bloody bandages on the side. And they strap my arms down, they put drugs into my arm I'll st- and they, start, they got the antiseptic and it stung like crazy. So I'm tensing under these straps because I've just been shaven. And anyway, so I thought, close your eyes, at least try to relax. And you know that sound you hear when you go to the silverware drawer and you rattle it? I heard that. And I thought, I wonder what's happening. So I opened my eyes and the surgeon's got the scalpel right over my appendix ready to start. And I just start yelling on the the operating table. And he's got the mask on and the hairpiece. All I see are these two big eyes just go wide open. And he starts yelling at the nurse and the nurse yells at someone else. She runs around and puts a a catheter or puts the more drugs into my other arm. And I'll tell you what, I've never stayed awake harder than I did for the next four or five minutes until the drugs finally put me out. And it was the scariest five minutes of my life because I couldn't get out. I was trapped. I honestly thought I was going to die on that table that night um, or that, that morning, but um, I didn't. Um, I did fly to Russia. Sorry, I did fly to Dallas when it was done to make sure that he hadn't left a tissue or a, a blade <laughs> or something inside me. And um, I came back and I finished this. I'll tell you what, just Russian medical, if I brought one thing home to Australia with me after my time in Russia is that I've never, ever one time complained about Australia's medical system or the resources we have available to us because, honestly, they're world class compared to what, they had over there at the time.
0: That hands down is probably the craziest story we've heard overseas. <laughs> yes. yeah, you were like almost going to be operated on and you were awake. I guess they didn't have the vodka drip hard enough to put you out. Geez,
1: I'll tell you what, I needed the vodka drip a lot of nights over there, but I could have done with it being IV attached to my arm. But um, no, look, it was scary. And it's, it's one of those rare stories. You don't have to exaggerate over the years because at the time I just thought it was scary. It was just, I'm glad I wrote it all down. I was writing emails back then before social media. You're not going to believe this. And my family didn't even, this is the thing, my family didn't even know I'd gone in for surgery because wow. I was having surgery two hours after I got to the hospital. I felt so alone because I thought, shit, I wish I had told someone that I was here, but I couldn't. No international telephone, no anything. And you know, I didn't get a hold of my family until about two or three days after My surgery back home but yeah my ex-wife who was there at the time had told them that it was happening but uh now I became very appreciative of uh of western medicine from that very second
0: (laughs) I don't blame you I mean that's insane um talk to us about the Olympics because we don't get a lot of guys on here that got to play the Olympics what was your experience like playing for your country that had just been amazing
1: yeah, the, the best and worst experience of my career at the Sydney Olympics was walking out into that opening ceremony with Andrew Gaze waving the flag and representing our nation and, and really, truly feeling that we're representing our country and knowing that you don't often know in the moment that this is a once in a lifetime or this is something they'll never experience again. But an Olympic Games that I'm competing in, in my home country I knew that was a, a once in a lifetime, and I, I soaked in every single second of it. It was incredible. Um, that sense of pride, the camaraderie within the group, you know. And then you, you fast forward, and we didn't start the tournament well, but and you learn a lot from that, and about how much that opening ceremony actually takes out of you because you're on your feet for hours, and you don't normally do that before an important game of basketball. Um, but rubbing shoulders with athletes from around the world in the village and, you know, many people will tell you that the Athletes' Village is incredible because no media is allowed in and you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want back then before social. Um, so that was a, a really interesting time. But those memories two weeks later were overshadowed or trumped by making the semi-finals of the Olympic Games and, not being able to win one of the next two games and and leaving the Olympic games without a medal. Um, We were were in, we bought in, we thought we could. And those last two games were as disappointing as any two games I've ever been a part of because we didn't give ourselves a shot. Um, Looking back, we may have been overwhelmed by the moment. We may not have performed at our best. There are a lot of reasons, Um, but that still hurts and... You know, I watched every second of the the two men's basketball games leading up to these Olympics. I watch every second of the Olympic Games with our team because I know what it means to put on a, an Australian basketball jersey. I know what it means to not quite get to where we wanted to go. And, jeez, I'll be cheering harder than anyone if we are able to find a way to win a medal, whenever it is, whether it's this year, whether it's in three years' time. But... It was incredible. Uh, I got to do it again in Beijing, um, and it was a different experience. It was more of a leadership capacity. I performed better but but played less. Um, it was just, yeah, to be around that caliber of player, that caliber of athlete, to be rewarded for the work you do throughout your career was really, really special.
0: Oh, I, I can't even imagine. That. I mean, what an absolute honor it would be for sure. You have a book out called Tall Tales, Um, How much time and work was put into this book? We've had some guys that played in the league that have written books. And I always like to hear about the creative process. I'm a musician artist. So I always like to hear about the process of how long did it take to do it? Like what, what got you to want to do it? And what do you want to tell the listeners, our listeners about it?
1: That's a whole bunch of great questions. I, we had a really long lockdown here in Melbourne and you can probably tell already, I like telling stories, Um, But I've always been appreciative of the people around me. Um, The reason I got into coaching 13 years ago was to share some of the lessons that I'd been – I'd always considered myself fortunate enough to learn from from incredible people because they were never going to have the opportunity to hear from those people or to be taught by those people. And I wanted their messages to stay alive. And throughout lockdown and I suppose as I got older and further removed from basketball at the top level – I wanted to continue to share those lessons to a a wider audience because I understand the parallels between sport and life uh, about habits and behaviour and success and working as a group. And the lessons I learned as a basketball player weren't the ones that I put onto the basketball floor. They were what I learned off the floor and about people and about myself and what I was actually capable of. And I wanted to tell those stories. And at the start of lockdown, I, I think... There was a lot of negativity around the beginning of lockdown here, and it went for months here in Australia. Um, I wanted to to put some positivity out there, and the one thing the lockdown gave us is something we always want more of, and that's time. And so I wanted to make my time valuable, so I started writing. And I wrote them in 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 the short term just to share them on Facebook, just to give basketball people something to read to alleviate a little bit of boredom and add a little bit of positivity. And there was, there was enough feedback um, that encouraged me enough to turn it into a book, and so I kept writing and I kept sharing. Then, then eventually I stopped sharing because there, there needed to be a, a bunch in the book that people hadn't read. And it almost felt like I was being selfish, but, um, you know, the book is called Tall Tales, but it's subtitled What the Whiteboard Never Taught Me. And that was what I wanted to get across, and I, I really think it's relevant to... To sports people to people in business but it's sometimes as much as anyone to to teenage students who are trying to figure out the, the direction that they want to head in um but you, you mentioned people who'd written books one of my teammates and one of the guys you may be referring to one of my teammates in russia who actually came in to replace me when i had my appendix out was a guy named paul shirley oh yeah and he wrote a book back in the day called Can I Keep My Jersey and he's recently written another one called Bull Boy and he helped me along the way of, you know, the guy who designed his books and typeset his books was the guy who did mine and um, the process was incredibly long and, again, you probably can tell I like telling stories but what I learned through the, through the process was that and one that I tell at any school still is that I, I was a... I went back to being a self-congratulator when I wrote my first short story and I was patting myself on the back and I let two or three friends write it, uh, read it before I posted and I'm glad I did because I read it and they're both in the room They I looked up and they went, that's shit. <laughs> and so I went back and I rewrote it and showed them again and showed a few others. I, I, I probably rewrote the first story five times before I put it on social media and by the time... I posted, I looked back, I thought, can you imagine what it would have been like if I had posted that first one? And I was really glad that I I committed more time to it. And I look look back and that's sport and that's life is that there are so many people out there who finish something and say, yep, that's as good as I can do, that's me. I mean, imagine if Dirk Nowitzki shot a couple of jumpers early days, if that's me as a jump shooter and didn't commit time to improving at all. So so imagine a student, if they found the time to finish it, a high school essay that was graded, and instead of finishing it the day before, showed it to a couple of mates, had them amend it, went and did it again, and submitted a better version of themselves. Imagine the difference that could make to their trajectory, and imagine the difference or the impact that could have to their habit or their behavior moving forward. And so that was what writing the book reminded me of as well, is that I want to continually do things and improve things. And, and that in itself became a lesson that I enjoy sharing through the process of writing the book. But um even in telling that story, that's the theme is that I've, I've been around some incredible people who've taught me some incredible life lessons. And I just wanted to share them with as many people as I could, because I don't like talking about me. I like talking about others. And I was able to do that in a book.
0: That's awesome. And, and you know, what's cool about that too is a lot of people have people helping them write books or. Sometimes people don 't even write books; they just put their names on it, and the book's written for them essentially, so it's neat that you know you're passing on these things on the internet or to your friends, your mates, and like what do you think you're getting that instant feedback and then obviously that helps because it just starts molding that clay of like okay, this it didn't work, that did work. they liked this, they didn't like that, and so you had nobody help you write like at all you basically was just right,
1: <laughs> yeah right at the end, I had a, an editor come in and just read the whole book and he added in a little bit of background information and, you know, I wrote a story about Sean Kemp and my assumption is people know who Sean Kemp is and I didn't provide the background information on who Sean Kemp was to a non-basketball person. So he added in bits and pieces like that. I made sure it was still how I would have written them. And so he was able to to tie it together for the non-basketball person. But, um, no, it was it was a great project, and it was something I'm I'm really really proud that I was able to complete.
0: He did, so, like maybe like proofreading it too, right? Looking for grammatical errors and things like that too, right? Because that's
1: got to be. You know what? Microsoft Word's great. You can do a spell check. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually always pretty good at English, so I was okay. Um, but no, he, he was good. It was, it was great to run a professional eye over it and. Then get an idea of how to set up a book, and then as I pick it up, you have to buy a barcode and get an I B ISBN number and yep. all of these things. I had no idea about, but uh, that was a fun process.
0: That's awesome. Um, so obviously, we know what you're doing with that. Are you still playing at all? Are you coaching? What, what are you What are you doing with that?
1: I, I still coach. I'm, I'm head of basketball at a high school here in Melbourne. I, I coach a senior women's team. I've actually been coaching girls and women. My, my daughter actually just began her scholarship at UCLA. Um, so I've been around basketball or the women's game for five years now, which, again, has really helped me and been really eye-opening in the differences between coaching boys, girls, men and women. Um, but it's helped me a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm involved in basketball. I'm doing some corporate work. Um, people, I learnt the term, uh, I've got a portfolio career. I do lots. I'm, I'm very project-driven. I've We've started a basketball events company here in Melbourne and you know, with some of the relationships I've got over in the States, when, when the world opens up again, i you know, very fortunate to be able to access some of the people who I've known over the years and we're going to provide some pretty cool events when the world opens up again. But uh, I keep myself busy.
0: Excellent. Excellent. We're going to do a little lightning round with you. It's just a one or two word answer to some questions Zach's going to ask and I'm actually going to ask one too. So Zach, I'm going to start the first question off if you don't mind. I have to always ask this to uh, all my Australian friends. Uh, your favorite Australian music artist?
1: Jimmy Bond or Cold Chisel as a band back in the day.
0: Okay, great answer. Zach, all right, continue with the lightning round.
2: All right, good question, by the way, and good answer. Uh, you played in the incredible big man era. Who would you say was your toughest cover if you had to pick just one, whether it's in the NBA or overseas or in Australia?
1: Shaq. It's simple. Shaquille O'Neal was just so physically dominant. And he could back then, think how how, how active he was. He could move. That was as close to impossible as the, that I ever saw.
2: thought you might say that from the conversation we had earlier. Yes. Uh, Paul Shirley said you're the funniest teammate that he's ever had. So who's the funniest teammate that you've ever had? Paul show.
1: I thought he had more teammates than that. Um, oh, <laughs> the, funniest te- the funniest teammate I've ever had. Oh, said, oh, there's a guy named David Stiff who played here in Melbourne. He ended up winning six championships. I played with him in the very last bit, and maybe because I appreciate him more. But NBA-wise, I'd have to say Cedric Sabalos.
2: Okay. Uh, who's the best trash talker? The best? Oh. oh, I didn't play
1: with many good ones. I, I, could, I could tell you Ron Artest was a bad trash talker. <laughs> um, <laughs> but oh, there's a guy named Leonard Copeland here in Australia. He's he's a legend of Australian basketball and just always ran his mouth and was one of the yeah. Just, he just played better when he was talking, and that that's rare. I always went the other way, but
2: coach here back in Australia. Okay, uh, who's the one guy that taught you how to be a true professional? Steve Nash and Brian Gorgian Brian first, and then Steve Nash. Okay. Uh, What are you most proud of from your career? If you had to pick one thing, what are you most proud of?
1: Oh, do I have to pick one? Um, Really? (laughs) No. uh, When it's all said and done, I'm proud of the fact I think i reached my potential. I think I became as good as I was able to become. Um, With regard to a basketball moment, You know, I love doing things that no one's ever done before. So winning the under-23 World Championships was something that a boys or men's Australian team had never done before. Um, Getting drafted to the NBA straight from the NBL had never been done before. And so I think those two things I'm proud of because hopefully maybe they showed that it was possible to just one or two other people.
2: That's a great answer. Absolutely. And uh, when I visit Australia, what's the one thing that I need to experience?
1: the beach man get to the beach we've, we've got an incredible beach culture um have fish and chips on the beach sit and watch the sun go down drink a beer at a bar and uh just sit there and talk to the locals
2: perfect
0: oh hey i got I got one more question for you uh did you ever get that picture with michael jordan <laughs>
1: yeah you know what I, I press play and pause so many times i've got the photo of, <laughs> it was the worst way ever to get a photo, but I've pressed play and pause so many times that I've got them. And yeah, well, one or two of them even made the book. I'm not sure if that's a copyright infringement. So I'm hoping no one who's listening is in copyright, but they're, they're photos of me. So I've got the photo.
0: That's awesome. Hey, is there anything you want to add or promote before we let you out of here?
1: No, nah, look, I'll tell you what, if that sounds interesting, I is a website. It's it's not a big deal, but I'd, I'd love to share the book with as many people as I possibly can. If you like reading, buy my book. If you don't like my book, buy one of Paul Shirley's. Um, they're cheaper to get delivered from the USA.
0: <laughs> hey, real quick, is it on Kindle too or no? For or- I haven't got around
1: to Kindle yet. I've, I've got, I'm still learning the process. Right now, they're all hard copies. I'm going to get an electronic copy done soon, but uh, might have to do that to the international people. I've actually sold a few to the States, which has been mind-blowing, actually. Fran Fraschill actually ordered one a couple of weeks ago, and I was... Very humbled that he took the time to buy one, which, yeah, just incredible.
0: That's awesome. Hey, I want to say thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you today. I know Zach did too. Um, you gave us some amazing, really cool stories, and you're super generous with your time. Um, before we let you go, Zach, is there anything you want to add to, to Chris? Anything you want to say to him before we let him go? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I just want to say thank you. And I mean it when I say you're one of my favorite Mavericks I've ever
1: watched. You're going to meet some other guys. You're going you to go find some. But yeah. no, hey, th- honestly, thanks for your interest. I, I love some It's It's great to chat to to basketball people in America. It's a lot different than what we, the, the regular conversation we hear around Australia, So we have here around Australia. So really appreciate your interest and uh, really enjoyed the chat.
0: I appreciate that. Make sure you stay safe out there. Thanks for coming to our show.
2: Will do. Thanks, Bruce. Take care. Thank you. What a great guy, man. Just unbelievable stories. Very pleasant. Very nice, funny, uh, informative. Just a lot of really good stuff in that one. And I, I really hope that this one gets a lot of listens. which I know it will because he's – I mean, he's an Australian legend. And it is funny. I mean, he is one of my favorite Mavericks of all time, him and Eric Strickland, man. I, I loved that team. So, I, I mean, i you you know I mean that. You know how I love my – you know, important role players on teams. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, you've got your Corey Benjamin story too.
2: Yeah. I, I was waiting for that. I had to find out if that story.
0: true. I, I remember hearing that rumor too. And, and a lot of times where there's smoke, there's fire. So I'm glad that he told it and, in and, and great detail too. You know, he's just one of those guys that like, you know, I do hope he comes to the States and I do hope we get to have a beer with him because he, he just seems like a, a, a guy you could just sit with hours and just tell stories and just, have one of those nights where you're like, man, that was a really cool hang. You know what I mean? Like just a great,
2: even if, even if we're not talking basketball, man, he'd just be a really cool guy to hang out with. And I promise, cause I am going to go to Australia either this summer or next summer, um, this upcoming summer that is. But when, I mean, when I go, I'm going to reach out to him. I'd love to meet up, have a beer, you know, or you know, watch him go. coach and support his team, whatever it is. I mean, whatever he needs, we're there for him.
0: You know, I had to ask that question about the, the his favorite Australian mu- musician because One of the things I always notice is everybody that I meet from Australia, I'm a musician. And uh, if you listen to the show, you know that I I drop it here and there, but every person I've met from Australia always asks for us to play music from Australia, whether it's, you know, ACDC or Midnight Oil, or it's, it's, there's always, they never ask for anything American. It's always Australian. So I had to ask him and Jimmy Barnes is a great answer. I mean, uh, that was a really good answer actually i was i was expecting acdc or midnight oil so that was a really really good answer um you know it would be nice to char- chart in australia i don't know if we have but we've charted in 17 other countries which is absolutely we
2: charted, charted in australia before we, it's hard
0: hard to remember man and i'm not saying that utistically it's just we're blessed to have all these countries listening to the show i mean we just we went up a couple uh notches in france and uh on their charts and Canada again, a couple of notches up on their charts. So it's I don't know, no, man. It's mind no. blowing to me, dude. I mean two. Number guys one in Angola, right? No well, dude. I mean, you know, we're, we're huge in Angola. <laughs> yeah, our, I mean, Angola. We're rock stars, man. Oh my god, we'll get a we, we should do a live remote from there.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean we can't show our faces in Angola. I mean, we'll be we'll be famous over there. We appreciate yeah. we appreciate Angola for sure.
0: Dude, for two two friends that just played morning ball together and had a crazy idea for putting a podcast together. It, we have definitely been blessed with a lot of wonderful guests and amazing stories. I mean that Russian story about the appendix.
2: Oh my gosh, that is incredible! Right? Could
0: you imagine, like, you're ready to be, go down under the knife and surgery, and you're still awake, and you and the people. Oh, he's. I think he's done one or two of these before. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, like. That's insanity, man. That I'm telling you right now. We've had some amazing stories. That is my favorite overseas story so far.
2: Easily. I mean, I feel like such a wimp after getting my wisdom teeth pulled after hearing that story. So yeah, I I don't mean, that think, was I a don't good. One.
0: We can top that one.
2: Uh-uh. no way. Th- that will never be topped.
0: I don't think we can. I mean, I mean, who knows? You never say never. But that that's that's definitely on the Mount Rushmore of uh, of crazy overseas stories that
2: that story alone is a great reason to go buy his book. So go buy tall tales i mean if you like that story there's so many other great stories in that book so make sure you go check out tall tales uh i mean obviously he loves to tell stories he's got great many great stories this is just a very small sample size of what you'll get i'm curious now.
0: about sean kemp's story
2: i am too you sure. know i love me some rain man i'm a seattle guy i love me I some rain, we man.
0: Asked him. but you know what though i plan on buying his book I, I definitely want to and and uh, I, I want to ask him, uh, send him an email for me, and see if he'll autograph it because I would love to have an autograph copy for sure. Yeah. I'll uh, be so you guys don't know this, but we did two podcasts in a day today, so that was a ton of fun. And uh, the one we did before, if you want to check out, um, you can because it's up. It's Von Wafer, and uh, he was an, another awesome podcast guest and. Just wanna say thanks again, guys, for for doing everything you do. Share and subscribe and reviews. Our reviews have been awesome. Um, we can't be more grateful, man. I mean, we can and we will be. So thank you for what you do. And we got some really cool guests coming up. We're really excited about it. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here?
2: Just big thanks to my favorite maverick, Chris To <laughs> My favorite maverick. I'm gonna say it again. Him and Eric Strickland, those are my guys. So big thanks to him and all the stories he shared, and just uh Really appreciate him coming on. And thanks to the listeners. Uh, And thanks to you, man. I mean, this is a great time. This is a really fun one today.
0: Uh, It's one of my favorite ones for sure, man. Everything just keeps getting better. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you stay safe out there. I would say that be good to each other, man. Thanks for listening. Peace.